0: Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill
1: Creek View newspaper. Welcome to Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are live on TECN.TV and we are focusing on the volunteer state on our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Stephen Wallace. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. There's a huge library there. This is episode 160. And while you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. And welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Stephen Wallace, and we are going to get a lot of truth Stephen Wallace was born in Philadelphia and raised in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, a Vietnam War-era veteran who served in the United States Army and Washington, D.C. area volunteer fire department. He taught high school in the D.C. Baltimore area, you can imagine. The recipient of numerous awards throughout his career, he received the National Distinguished Leadership Award from the American Federation of School Administrators, citing him among the top eight school principals in the nation, he received honorary life membership in the National Congress of Parents and Teachers in recognition of his devoted and distinguished services to children and youth. Thank you for your service. He has provided his K 12 education perspectives on television and radio broadcasts nationally, including National Public Radio and CNBC. His writings have appeared in national periodicals, including Insight Magazine, Education Week, USA Today the Los Angeles Times, the Baltimore Sun, the St. Louis Dispatch, the Washington Post, the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Cincinnati Inquirer. His no-excuses philosophy, emphasizing character, high-quality teaching, parent involvement, and student behavioral and academic excellence is a professional mantra that results in meaningful school success. He has over 30 years of experience as a teacher, secondary school administrator, principal, and guest lecturer at the university level. Mr. Wallace was asked to take the helm of a problem-plagued school in the Baltimore-Washington, D.C. corridor. Upon arrival, he found the usual pathologies of schools servicing a diverse spectrum of students, many of whom are disadvantaged youngsters, failing state academic state scores, poor teacher morale, racial concerns, disruptive student behavior vandalism, few parent-teacher association members, and no school business partnerships. He appeared before the United States Senate Committee on Government Affairs hearings, providing expert testimony on the role schools can play in the effort to combat crime and violence throughout our nation's communities. Mr. Wallace and his wife, Elaine, have two grown married children and four grandchildren. They share their time between Elcott City, Maryland, and St. Petersburg, Florida. Check out his new book out now, Dead Last, The Triumph of Character, Passion, and Teamwork in Education. Hello, Mr. Willis, how are you today? I'm doing well, Steve. Nice to be with you. Merry Christmas
2: and uh, Happy Hanukkah to you and uh, our viewers, your audience.
1: Thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. I hope you're in lovely St. Petersburg and not up there in Maryland where it's probably ice cold, but you can tell us. Um, Dead last, the triumph of character, passion and teamwork in education. Uh, Your school's journey from failure to excellence, providing an anecdote for struggling school communities throughout America. what state was your school in and how long? I guess it was Baltimore, Maryland. And how long ago did you retire? And what changed from when you were teaching to what they're doing today that took them from first to last?
2: The school was in the uh, Baltimore-Washington corridor uh, in Maryland. Uh, I retired 12, 11 years ago. And uh, what's different is that um, a number. Well, I, I would tell you, I saw the writing on the wall probably 40 years ago, I guess I could have written the book, Steve. We started seeing that we started dumbing down education. We started uh, defining deviancy down. It was a death death knell for schools. And so we saw a lower quality of education for many years now. But of late, parents are quite, quite and communities and corporations are quite taken uh, back and are rather incensed with the degree to which schools now Are engaging more and more in indoctrination um, than a a meaningful education and uh, many of the schools seem to um, have been guided by some type of a cultural or uh, political agenda Uh, people are incensed and rightly so because so many of the school districts today have aligned themselves with a philosophy, uh, I think, socialistic in nature that's divisive and destructive that revolves around um, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, gender ideology, uh, critical race theory, uh, grievance mongering, with some districts actually embracing the Marxist Black Lives Matter agenda that uh historians and uh, researchers esteemed historians and research researchers have have proven uh to be a lie that uh the foundation upon which all this nonsense rests uh is a falsehood and um, it just in my view uh those and it's so ironic Steve that those vested with the the um, opportunity to run these schools, to, to, to do what needs to be done throughout these communities, uh, show little knowledge of anything in the way of education and what it means to be educated. Uh, my view has always been um, that there are successful schools that dot the American landscape, but they differ um, from those in the main. And um, I remember I was coming out of the service, getting out of the military, and I was reading a biography of Thomas Jefferson And he thought then that the view of education was such that uh, for a young America, it should be to ameliorate the condition um, to promote the virtue um, and thereby advance the happiness of man, of of mankind, womankind, men and women, boys and girls in communities. And that's not what we're doing today. I I thought that was a particularly unique philosophy. I, I, I liked it. It became my North Star from the day I walked into my, first classroom teaching high school English, and then throughout my career in administration and as a school principal to to do just that, ameliorate the condition, improve the condition of kids and your staff, um, the parents, your community, and you do it by promoting virtue um, and thereby- I, I am
1: so glad that you said that because that is a segue to my next question, which was 200 years ago, 1822, Thomas Jefferson said, and I didn't memorize this i looked it up for today's show man once surrendering his reason has no remaining guard against absurdities the most monstrous and like a ship without rudder is the sport of every wind with such person's gullibility which they call faith takes the helm from the hand of reason and the mind becomes a wreck thomas jefferson's involvement with and support of education is best known through his founding of the university of virginia which he established in 1819 as a secular institution after he left the presidency of the United States. Jefferson believed that libraries and books were so integral to individual and institutional education that he designed the university around its library. Many historians have praised Jefferson for his efforts on behalf of public education while portraying him as a forerunner of the common school movement that began to take off during the late 1830s under the leadership of Horace Mann in Massachusetts. What would he say about today's state of the public schools that you saw with your own eyes? Well,
2: Jefferson, no doubt, in my, in my mind, is the brightest statesman that our country has ever produced. Um, and what he said is similar to uh, to what what I always felt that we needed to do, but we didn't see often enough that that educators and particularly school administrators um, simply have the wrong focus. You know, our I guess it was about 162 years ago, President uh, our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, said something to the effect that America will never lose to a foreign entity. Of course, that could be debated today. But that if we falter, if we lose our freedoms, it will be because we've done it to ourselves. And what we're doing to ourselves today is what Thomas Jefferson, he'd be rolling over in in his grave. The fact of the matter is that... um, We need to return to teaching kids reading and writing and arithmetic. These coalitions that have come about from Moms for Liberty to Parents Offending Education and the like are absolutely correct. We have absolutely dumbed down education and we're accepting behavior today in schools, both professionally from, from staff, including administrators, school officials, and students that Steve, we never would have accepted
1: years ago. Yeah, he believed that only educated citizens could make the American experiment in self-government succeed. So he proposed a system of broad, free public education that was radical in its day. So we've regressed to pre Jeffersonian schooling, right? Well, I think so. And I. Uh, my view is
2: always parallel, uh, Thomas Jefferson's, and I think the view of those um, in successful schools, and they dot the American landscape, but they are run so so differently than those in the main. And I, I really believe, Steve, that, that if our nation continues to accept the nonsense that is today's education, that passes for education today, that we cannot for long remain a sovereign nation. We can't do it. For some 247 years, almost two and a half centuries, we've been told that essential to our liberties, to our very constitutional republic, who we are, um, um, the liberties and the freedoms we hold dear is an, is, is an educated populace, is an educated populace. And every year that goes by, we continue not to do that. And, and this past year, for example, 2023, we look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress. We look at the National Center for Education Statistics. And they tell us, for example, that of the, we have had just over 3 million kids that graduated this past school year. So all this information is current. And out of the 3 million kids that were given diplomas, only 25% tested proficient in math. We find that as far as the schools are concerned, the atmosphere of the schools, we find that 10 million kids are routinely bullied. On any given day of the week, 160,000 kids remain home from school because they're afraid to go to school. Because school officials who have lost any idea of what really is involved in education, it seems the, the self discipline, the high expectations, the value that parents bring to preparing kids for school, also refuse recklessly to understand that bullying behavior itself, this menacing behavior needs to be eradicated from schools and book, as a matter of fact, I tell you how we did just that, but that's not done. And you add to that, that because of our loss of direction throughout the United States, from the secretary of education, from the white house, in my opinion, on down to lawmakers who fund education, to all these boards of education, these school officials, um, we have now 350,000 education staff members in any given year that are routinely threatened throughout the academic year, of whom 210,000 are physically assaulted in our schools, teachers and administrators and secretaries, uh, secretaries of uh, um, aides and school bus drivers and cafeteria workers. It's simply out of control. We have 2 million students who admit carrying weapons to school. It's so, more it's like so little out of control now, and, and frankly, academically, besides the math, we find out that only 37% of the kids test proficient in reading, for God's sakes, and the National Assessment of Educational Progress says, you know, it's so bad, the tra- trajectory of education has so gone south that as students in K-12 through schools matriculate through schools, they do less well, Steve, in key academic areas, the antithesis, the opposite of what one should expect for the money that we're paying in the way of taxes throughout the nation. And you can take any subject area, take, uh, I don't know, civics, take uh, U.S. history, take take science, and you're talking 20%. You're talking 13 and a, or 13% of U.S. history and science, we're talking 22%. Hmm. So you can imagine I have 3 million students that there are 87% of those 3 million students know nothing about the United States of America and less about world history. And that percentage of kids that tested proficient in reading, which I believe I told you was 37%, some 42 years ago, and this is why I say probably could have written this 40 years ago. During the Reagan administration, we took an examination of schools throughout America, and we saw that 13% of the graduates then, this would have been 1982, 83, could not read. And we were aghast as a nation, and instead of doing soul searching, we throw money at it, millions and millions of taxpayer dollars. And today, with only 37% of kids testing proficient, we see that now out of that 63% who did not, instead of 13%, 19% nineteen percent of the kids nineteen percent almost one in five kids of the three million youngsters receiving diplomas this past year cannot read their diplomas
1: so so, so why... would you would you tell a ten year old stephen that said he wanted to grow up to be a teacher one day uh like you did to go for it and strive to be one or would you say uh okay but only if you could do private school what would you say to a ten year old stephen willis
2: well i First of all, um, there are tre- tremendous private schools, um, but but the private school also is not the panacea. There are people avoiding t- or have to pay taxes and paying thirty, forty, sixty thousand a year for some of these for some of their youngsters and getting uh, this garbage education um, in private schools too. But generally speaking, private schools are better. I would I would tell someone to think twice before they go into teaching. And, and this is someone, Steve, that. I I always thought that, that, that teaching was an honorable profession um, and it's, it's honorable to the extent that you are working with uh, someone of characters, an honorable school official, but too many teachers are not. I mean, we're losing 8% of our teachers every year. Um, we're talking about a, an academic year, an academic year as opposed to the um, calendar year, we're talking 180 days. Um, Some states have fewer days, others more. But during that 180-day period, that amounts to over a 1,000 teachers a day who leave the profession. Mm. And in exit interviews, they generally say the reason why they leave is because they don't like how they were treated, they don't like that they get uh, no support from their administration, um, and they feel humiliated. I remember when I took over this one school, I was looking through the files and saw that there were people working there for some 25, 27 years, and they didn't have any leave. And I talked to them, and they said, you know, Miss Wallace, I would rather have stayed home and not got paid instead of coming to school and being humiliated and getting no support from the administration. Wow. That
1: had, that had all strained. It was sad, and it had all strained. I want to change. talk about teacher I want to talk about more about teachers in a moment, but I do want to say, so um, he- here's what someone going by the name uh, Delphine wrote on Amazon, giving you five stars on your book. Uh, a hero in Our time. Stephen Wallace represents what educators used to be. He saw problems and he went about fixing them. He knew those students were totally capable of succeeding if they had people around them who were nurturing by implementing high standards. Did Delphine, or whoever it is, get the essence of your book correctly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was taken back by that. I was awfully appreciative. Uh, but, you know, Steve, you need people who, first of all, know what the hell they're doing and can exercise leadership. I mean, when, when I took over the school, I mean, I, I bet parents were in that building within two hours of my arrival. In fact, when I arrived to introduce myself, the the individual who would turn out to be the principal secretary. And that was the title. That's how they, that's what the title is all. About, principal secretary. And she told me, uh, you know, I asked, uh, I looked at the bandage on her face, uh, you know, up front with her and said this. I'm just curious what's what's up with the bandage. And um, she told me that she had been physically assaulted the last week of the school year, which was only a few weeks earlier. And I said to myself, game on. In fact, I named that one of my, uh, one of the chapters of the book. Um, but these parents that were there just a few minutes later decried how awful the school was, how, how filthy the cafeteria and the, the bathrooms and the hallways, the classrooms were that they decried the inferior teaching that was going on. And, um, they knew, and I was holding the state, state, uh, record at the time, uh, recording of, state of the school and they were well aware that every student group represented in that school steve uh, had failed state tests every student group um they decried the fact that often they would have to contact police because of the violence the threatening behavior on the part of the kids so it it required that i that i i said to myself i got to change the culture of the school i mean arguably the most challenging aspect of any company or corporation or school district there there wasn't a thing that I can think of that I thought was positive about the school community so there was no question that uh, that's probably among the reasons why this Delphine um, said that there was no question Mm. that we were going to rid the school um, of what had been standard fare and so that that, that, I saw a a documentary
1: a couple years ago about a young activist new teacher at an inner city school. Can't remember the title, but I think it was Baltimore. But anyway, she came in with a lot of energy and new ideas on how to teach better and how all the veteran teachers were resistant to her. She ended up mostly frustrated, but I'm thinking spread across the country for the next 10 plus years, her college training might've worked on the schools, especially after Obama said the school boards were the battleground for progressive ideas. Is that pretty much the way it went? The Obama acolytes graduated with education degrees and infected the public school curriculums. And that's how how we got to where you're talking about. They could actually now lash out at their teachers for being so, I don't know, uh, repressed, I guess, mentally. Yeah, I think so, Steve. I think personally that
2: that the Obama presidency was among the most um, um, disruptive and unsuccessful presidencies. And as regards schools, um, it, it it's as though a number of those acolytes, in fact, have uh, filtered into to schools throughout America. They are indoctrinated themselves. You hear school administrators say uh, appallingly that uh, people really need to get their act together and understand that uh, we are a nation now of multiple genders. Um, I mean, I can't imagine hiring someone like that, much less having someone like that serve a pivotal decision-making um, position, and so I felt that I that I had I had to make character the soul of the school. Steve, um, where we blanketed the school with characteristics. Um, I mean, like honesty and and grit and kindness, and uh, the faculty themselves needed to understand what was meant by perseverance and that nothing replaced hard work. Um, that we had to establish standards of behavior that uh, I actually it was so bad i I felt I had to incorporate um, various facets of uh, broken windows theory that turned uh, i don't know how familiar the audience would be with it, but essentially it said it postulates that that disorder uh, is an invitation for crime to occur. and so if we if we were going to turn this school around in my opinion. We needed to make sure that we were concentrating on the um, smaller, more minor infractions, getting to class on time, speaking respectfully. That if you saw trash in the hallways, a faculty member or myself, but you picked it up. That we wanted the kids to understand mm-hmm. that this school was very much worth saving, that we weren't going to tolerate uh, cursing and butting in line, and that we weren't going to tolerate any more the striking of uh, other kids and what have you. We, we so emphasized the importance of character um, and, and the idea that we would then enact standards of academic excellence. I mean, my God, this was a school that not only had uh, behavior that was out of control, but uh, we had kids who were uh, non-readers, some of whom are new, it was a mobile demographic and some of the school kids were in and out, but a number of whom had been with the school district for years and were just passed along grade level, each grade level, and not able to read. And I vowed to the staff that that was going to change, that that very year, we were going to ensure that every child um, would, would in fact, be on grade level, that we they would be able to read. And in fact, we did just that. Um, everyone understood that uh, even the acolytes, the people that were just used to being on Easy Street, that uh, everyone would be evaluated, that I really want to know uh, about their interpersonal relations with with kids and staff, that it was good and healthy. I want to know about their planning and preparation. I want to know that uh, the classroom environment was conducive, contributive to academic study. I want to know about their uh, instructional delivery, their professional responsibilities. Everyone understood that professional and personal uh, accountability would be the order of the day. And people grew to love it. So that means
1: Debbie Pringle and Randy Weingarten, presidents of the largest teachers unions going back more than the seven years that Obama's been gone, drove the bus on unwinding all that. They did indeed. In fact, I talk about a number. uh,
2: That's one thing that the uh, couple publishing companies liked about the book, Steve, is that I I not only take the reader on a journey from failure to excellence, but I talk about those major issues that... um, are like tin cans have been kicked down the road uh the 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 multicultural achievement gap in schools and I explain why that why the difference is there in behavior and uh and academic excellence among different races it has nothing to do with race, but I also talk about parenting in schools and vocational education and the poisonous wokeness um that has infected schools and along with that, I talk about teacher unions. Teacher teacher unions, by the way, are the last entity that should be receiving federal funds, COVID funds, or anything else. They were very much behind keeping schools closed. And other countries were were keeping schools open. We knew that the, the kids could go to school, in fact, that there was very little chance that the kids would get infected, much less spread to others. And it really did put the kids far behind,
1: but yeah, Teachers, and you work teaching. to teach them, you you work to teach more of them to read, but then they infuse CRT, social emotional learning, age inappropriate, confusing sexual material for very young kids. That uh, This is just anti-family, anti-God propaganda, you know, published by major booksellers and stuck in classrooms in the American Library Association and their elected self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian president. So there's three women at the top that are causing this. The long march through those institutions landed in the Department of Education and taxpayer-funded libraries and librarians. They have a union too. What, What was Drag Queen Story Hour became institutionalized public school curriculum. How does society fight back against that? It's one thing to teach them to read, but then it's what they read that they want to push down on them that's the problem. Well... It's a
2: common, it's a very good question. But you know, you know, when I was young, uh, when I was a y- youngster, we had these. I, I remember it was an old black and white TV, you know, and, it was, and it had the old rabbit ears on it, and you would tune it in. You would, would try to get in stations, and there were only about three or four stations uh, from which you could choose. And there was a there was a gentleman that would, a much revered gentleman that would come on the program, and his name was Fulton Sheen. He was an archbishop. And he was talking about right and wrong behavior. He was talking about, I guess, morality at the time. And I always equated that um, uh, with ethics and ethical behavior. But he said, you know, morality and and moral principles, it's not the kind of thing that you subject to a majority vote. Um, Wrong is wrong, um, even if everybody's wrong. And right is right, even if nobody's right. And I know what's wrong for schools. And what's wrong is to have this kind of garbage, um, this profanity. Um, it, it shouldn't be a choice within our schools. What we should be doing is teaching kids more, the reading, the writing, the mathematics. teach what we know works and what's going to make kids uh, more intellectually successful. We know. What we're doing now is not working, for God's sakes. We only need to see the National Center of Education Statistics, uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress and the reports that we see there.
1: So it's it's let's let me talk about some of those statistics so we don't run out of time with you. But um, so total enrollment in public elementary and secondary schools increased from forty nine point five million to fifty point eight million students between the fall of 2010 and the fall of 2019. During the coronavirus pandemic, enrollment dropped by about 3% from 50.8 million, we just said, in the fall of 19 to 49.4, even lower than before, million students in fall of 2020, so back to 2010 levels, and fall of 2021. Total enrollment and projected to continue decreasing to 46.9 million by fall of 2031, the last year projected data available between the fall of 2010 and the fall of 2021, there was a decrease in the percentage of students who were white from 52 to 45%. That's huge. Black from 16 to 15%, down 1%, and American Indian Alaskans from 1.1% 1. 1 to under 1% at 0.9%. During the same time period, there was an increase in the percentage of students who were Hispanic from 23 to 28%. Asian from 4.6 to 5.4%. And between fall of 2021 and projected fall of 2031, the percentage of public elementary and secondary students enrolled in public schools are projected to continue decreasing for students who are white from 45 to 42%, black from 15 to 14%, and American Indians from 0.9 to 0.8%. In contrast, the percentage of students who are Hispanic is projected to continue to increase from 28 to 30%. That's from the National Center for Educational Statics, Statistics, nces.ed.gov. That's what you're talking about, right? Exactly, and it's amazing. I, I
2: tell you, the enrollment and and uh, homeschooling alone has uh, has increased dramatically, and uh, you, you know all of this comes about, Steve, because those educators that are vested with the responsibility of providing education to our kids don't understand the culture of trust that needs to be returned to schools we don't have that now we don't have coherent decision making we don't have thoughtful communication because we're getting we're, we're not focused on doing the kinds of things that are going to catapult academic excellence in schools um what we're talking about is 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 nonsense the whole issue of um the whole trans issue is just something that's so so is demoralizing to people and devalues um the the exquisite differences between men and women boys and girls and what have you it's it steals it's it steals the innocence from children
1: and we're talking about some massive percentage of americans only nine percent were enrolled in private schools and the remaining 91 percent were enrolled in all these public schools k through 12 That's a lot of generations worth of of kids coming out of there. Um, School choice. So there's been a proliferation of new or expanded private school choice programs that have universal or near universal eligibility marks. Major momentum for school choice advocates who have dubbed 2023 the year of universal choice. So far this year, lawmakers in 14 states have passed bills establishing school choice programs or expanded existing ones and lawmakers in 42 states, almost all of them, have introduced these bills according to EdChoice, a nonprofit that tracks and advocates for school choice policies, and FutureEd, a Georgetown University-based education policy research center. So six of the 14 states, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Utah, have actually passed school choice policies, making programs universal or near, near universal over the next three years. They joined Arizona and West Virginia, which in recent years either established or expanded it, Tennessee, my state is trying to do it. Um, is that the future then? Are we looking at a, a new successful rollout of choice for parents and kids stuck in these terrible schools that you and I agree are are going the wrong direction? Or is it going to be successfully halted by politics and they're gonna be trapped for another generation in failing schools like the projected 2030 numbers I told you about?
2: Well, I I hope it's both. First of all, I hope we get to the point where every parent of any school-age child is offered school choice, I, th- I think that's appropriate. I think the competition is uh, smart. I told people that, that uh, when we were running this particular school that we turned around together that um, they could have opened up a charter school around the corner, and it wouldn't have been as good uh, a, a job as what we were do- as we were doing. The whole issue of education savings accounts just makes so much sense to me that we ought to take a portion of the taxpayer dollars that people are paying and allow parents to make that decision and let the money go with the kids travel with the kids Uh, ideally I'd like to see the I don't think the public school is going anywhere but I think public schools much need to turn themselves around and adopt a more Jeffersonian view of teaching and learning and that's only going to happen I would imagine with someone I was in Pinellas County talking about schools, and they were saying how they want to get the the book uh, to their governor, DeSantis, down there, that they want to uh, get the book to former President Trump. And it would take someone like a DeSantis or Trump to to bust things up and uh, to do the kinds of things that will catapult schools to excellence. We really need schools to understand that what they're doing now is wrong. I imagine it's going to take coalitions like Moms for Liberty and parents defending education and the like uh, to serve as kind of an impetus um, to force this change. Um, So I think school choice, uh, whether or not public schools decide to get their act together, school choice um, is absolutely necessary, and that is the way to go. And I think I make a moral uh, and a a good argument for it in the book.
1: Let me ask you this. Uh, No Child Left Behind Act was a signature educational initiative that originated with George W. Bush uh, back in 2001. The goal of that was receive bipartisan support at the time of signing was to require schools to bring 100% of their students to proficiency in math and reading by the year 2014. Oops. Education Secretary Arne Duncan estimated that 82% of this country's public schools are not passing the test in educating our children. So not 100%, 82% aren't. Former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos said at a conservative education, she was under Trump, said at a conservative education summit that she believes the Department of Education should be abolished. When Randy Weingarten heard that, she said the union was at war. Um, Is Betsy right? And they should get the federal government out of it. And is Weingarten wrong? They shouldn't be fighting to preserve it. They should be actually looking to reform it. Well, it depends on who's
2: in office. You know, I vacillate on that. Uh, If When Reagan was in office, I thought William Bennett was in the right position and should have been Secretary of Education. um, With someone who um, uh, shares the values of, of, I hope, most Americans, um, that we ought to be in the business of of ameliorating the condition of kids, of improving the condition of kids. Um, Someone like-minded. I'd like to see in that bully pulpit uh, as secretary of education um over the over the top of the education department as a conservative you know it makes sense to return education to the states um uh, i get that and i understand that and then i think of all these different states where they have uh, uh including maryland that in my view have ruined education for thousands upon thousands of kids um so uh i i do think that uh, I I don't trust and don't believe the Randy Weingartners and and the teachers unions, and I think there are too many organizations that exist that allow teachers to get the um, benefits and the protection they need from other organizations. Um, So I vacillate on that, frankly. Um, If uh, we had a strong uh, traditionalist conservative um, at the Department of Education, um, I would welcome that. but as a conservative, I think uh, as, as well, that I, I understand the argument that it should be returned to the states and those decisions should be made closer um, to the communities themselves. I get that. Uh, I am a public school guy and I resent that the public school has been bastardized by various presidential administrations and by those who don't have the best interest of kids at heart. Um, and I think the only way to turn that around is going to have to be through getting someone um in the white house 1600 pennsylvania avenue who in fact believes in how best to turn around schools and returning um an academically strong environment to every school in america that's that's not who's in office now that's not what we have in schools now
1: well, you're right I, I have time for one last question and the nbc poll came out uh, for 18 to 34 year olds which is basically who we're talking about since you were in school and, and who's now graduated into our country uh trump 36 percent to doctor of education jill biden and joe biden at 34 percent. gen z went biden by 20 points in 2020. so that's a huge swing the other direction um why do you think the change and they cited student debt forgiveness not being uh, a promise kept uh, was, was the reason, but it, it has to be more than that. Why, why do you think they'd swung from Democratic Biden to now favoring Trump um, just two years later? Oh my God, Steve, I, I think
2: because uh, every, every sector of our country um, is in the toilet, from immigration to transportation, energy um, and education and uh, we fall behind uh, precipitously uh, every month um and and people genuinely believe that because we were in such good shape when trump was in the president in the presidency um that there's no question that he won't he won't accept the failure the continuing failure and i think that's why people in pinellas county in florida were telling me they they really want to get the book dead last to the former president Things are so bad now in our country, there's just no question in many people's mind, uh, I believe, that formerly might have voted for Biden, that um, as Trump said himself one time, what do you got to lose? That's what they're feeling right now. And they think they've got everything to gain by voting for someone like Trump. Uh, for God's sakes, uh, uh, he's, he's leading by considerable margins um, over other Republicans and leading, as you mentioned, um, in several polls over Biden um so i i think it would take someone the caliber of trump to um really kick education in the fanny yeah. and get it we, going we can't afford
1: much. to lose another generation of, of kids coming out of schools that's for darn sure especially 92 percent of them that go to school at all um mr wallace thank you so much for your time really appreciate it wish i could do this for two hours uh we are at the end here so tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and follow your social media if you have a presence and where to buy your book
2: uh, they can buy my book, uh, Steve, uh, by way of um, any major book outlet, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Um, my email address is uh, stephenwallisauthor at um, uh I want to thank you, by the way, for having me out and uh, really wish you and uh, your family a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah and to your listeners. And I hope our paths cross and uh, not, too, not too distant future, Steve. Thanks. Thanks again.
1: Great, and that's Dead Last, the Triumph of Character, Passion, and Teamwork in Education. Happy holidays, and thanks for coming on with us. You bet, Steve. Pleasure. Take care. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard-dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com.
0: I don't know.
1: Welcome to the Steve Steve's segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what would you think of our guest, Steve, Steve, and Stephen Wallace?
0: Well, I liked uh, what he had to say. We could have gone another uh, 20 minutes, but I know you've got your Steve and Steve section today you want to cover, but um, I would like to have heard some of the things he says in his book, but he's very crafty about not <laughs> telling book. you, but buy his <laughs> book, it'd be worth the 20 bucks or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm like, I think I'll buy the book. But I think, Steve, I think it's going to be a one school district or one school at a time. I don't see anybody from the top swooping down to rescue us. I think it's a one school saving yeah. after another.
1: Well, look at the power of the of the unions that was able to take on the one reformer in my lifetime, which was Betsy DeVos, and they completely uh, circled the wagons and and outlived her and outlasted her at the at the uh, power pole position. So here we go. But, you know, I've talked a lot about lawfare and weaponization of politics, Uh, not just a blood sport anymore, but an actual paralyzation of one's opponent, like in a chapter in Saul book, uh, Full-On Rules for Radicals from Saul book. Well, I want to give an example today. Uh, Lawfare is the use of legal systems and institutions to damage or delegitimize an opponent or to deter an individual's usage of their legal rights. The term may refer to the use of legal systems and principles against an enemy, such as by damaging or delegitimizing them, wasting their time and money, or winning a public relations victory. Let's start with clip number one. Standing here for the third time in five months is not a coincidence. This is the Biden political lawfare that we have seen time and time again. It is a deflection from everything that they have done. This is not a coincidence. This is election interference at its finest against the leading candidate right now for president, for either party. President Trump is under siege in a way that we have never seen before. President Trump and his legal team and everyone on his team will continue to fight, not for him, but for the American people. The uh, process is the punishment. Hat tip Tom Fitton at Judicial Watch. That's who I heard that from first. That's brilliant. Um, and that was New Jersey lawyer Alina Haba. She went from a relatively unknown civil litigation attorney to a national name when she was hired by former President Donald Trump in 2021. The glamorous former fashion executive is now one of the top legal minds defending Trump in some of the country's most high-profile civil cases. She's also one of his closest confidants. Haba is currently representing Trump in his $250 million civil fraud trial where the former president is accused by New York Attorney General Letitia James of filing fraudulent financial statements that inflated the value of his property and assets for years, although the banks deny any wrongdoing. In their loan process. Uh, let's uh, listen to clip number two and then I'll give you a case study. I'm going to
2: be dealing with right now.
1: Turn it up. I have a racist
2: attorney general who made some terrible savings. You'll see some more that came over the wires today. And it's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries. And it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it, they see it, and they don't like it. They don't like it because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political warfare. Another name. i got a lot of names for it. But usually it takes place in third world countries and banana republics. And nobody's ever seen that to this extent. We've never seen it there.
1: We've never seen that before in America. That is pretty true. Watergate was close. Uh, lawfare, punishing me for advising Trump will cost me $3 million by Joy Pullman. John Eastman has been harassed unceasingly since assisting Trump in 2020, 2020, 2020 constitutional litigation. Three lawsuits attempting to bankrupt a constitutional scholar for giving the prior Republican president legal advice will cost him 3 to $3.5 million, John Eastman said. Eastman was a target of Democrats' illegal January 6th committee and has been harassed by the FBI and court since assisting Donald Trump in 2020 constitutional litigation. This is what I call the authoritarian moment in our history, Eastman told reporters. The whole premise here is the government has spoken and you continue to say otherwise, therefore you must be lying. Eastman's legal defense fund has raised more than half a million dollars so far, less than a third of what we're already incurred and less than about a sixth or seventh of what we're likely to incur before we're done, Eastman said. To defend himself legally in a Georgia prosecutor's case against Trump and a dozen of his associates, Eastman needs to raise a million dollars by February, he said. I'm trying very hard not to completely deplete my wife's retirement fund. When our founders pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honors to create a government of a free people with free institutions, they put everything on the line, he responded when asked how he and his wife are holding up. And we are at a crossroads in our country on whether we're going to go back to a tyrannical form of government where we are subject, not free citizens, or whether we are going to fight like our forefathers fought and our foremothers fought for liberty. And so I happen to have been thrust into a role where I can participate in that fight and I draw strength from the knowledge and from the people that lend support to us because they recognize how important the fight is. For the last year, Eastman says, protesters have stood at the end of their street. Unknown individuals kept burying four-inch spikes in their dirt driveway, Eastman said, which ruined multiple sets of tires until they spent a lot of money on a security system. They've had feces thrown onto their property and kept Yielding nasty emails and phone calls, they've referred multiple threats to the state police and FBI, he said. Besides the personal threats, Eastman is being targeted by three lawsuits as a result of giving legal advice to the last Republican president. A disbanded trial in California, a disbarment trial in California, the latest special counsel's attempt to handicap Republicans in the 2024 election, and the Georgia Trump trial. A Chapman University law professor for 20 years and law school dean for four, Eastman recently retired over colleagues' smears. The letter, this is from a different article, the letter signed by 169 members of the Chapman faculty and board of trustees is even more scurrilous. It claims falsely that I participated in a riot that incited last week's violence at the nation's capital, January 6th. I participated in a peaceful rally of nearly half a million people two miles away from the violence that occurred at the Capitol and which began even before the speeches were finished. In the last back to the article in the last 20 years, he was involved in more than 200 major constitutional cases before the Supreme Court, including advising Florida's legislature on Bush v Gore probably what this real revenge is for. Eastman is also a Claremont Institute legal scholar and former U.S. Supreme Court clerk, as well as an Eagle Scout, former Boy Scout troop leader, and former member of his church choir. California's Far Left Bar Association made this and front and center case challenging all the election issues, Eastman said. Witnesses have been affiliated with leftist projects projects to disbar all lawyers who provide a legal defense to conservatives. Those include the 65 Project, advised by Media Matters founder David Brock. Media Matters is infamous for media smear operations to erase conservatives' participation in the public square over which Elon Musk recently filed suit. Brock told Axios the 65 Project would, quote, not only bring the grievances in the bar complaints, but shame them and make them toxic in their communities and in their firms. It's working. You're threatening their livelihoods. Besides targeting Eastman and the more than 100 lawyers who help Republicans with election litigation in 2020, the 65 Project is pushing bar associations to disbar any lawyers who help Republicans in elected-related litigation, Axios reported. They're criminalizing being a lawyer. The initiative has filed bar complaints against, among dozens of others, the Republican Attorneys General of Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, Montana, my Tennessee, Utah, West Virginia, and more. Notoriously, left bar associations are using their licensing monopoly to deprive conservatives of high quality counsel. Texas's state bar is going after the state attorney general. The New York bar notoriously stripped Trump counsel Rudy Giuliani of his law license. The Arizona state bar is attempting to disbar a local prosecutor for charging Antifa rioters, while hundreds of protesters filed no charges or any misdemeanors against the domestic terrorist organization. Eastman is primarily being targeted for his legal advice to Trump following the 2020 election Mark Pullman summarizes Eastman was the architect of a strategy to postpone the certification of electoral votes on January 6 pending a resolution of challenges in key states we don't live by fact anymore we live by false narratives repeated over and over again until they took until they look true because they've been repeated so often Eastman said we are living in George Orwell's 1984. When the government says two plus two is five, you better not only repeat it, but believe it or we're going to destroy you, he said. Sounds fun, doesn't it, Steve? Oh, man. Want to be president when you grow up and deal with that? They (laughs) never disbar each other on the same team. So now with a plagiarist at the top of Harvard Law School where the future judges and lawyers and politicians like Elizabeth Warren, the fake Indian come from, we've got a problem in this country. Um, On a lighter note, it's time for... Christmas party. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Rail conductor says there are too many drunken grizzlies on train tracks. A train conductor said grizzlies own stubbornness works against them as they don't move off the tracks, despite warning horns from trains. It's a game of chicken between the drunk grizzlies and trains and the bears lose every time. After reading a cowboy state daily story about drunk grizzlies getting hit on the tracks there, Summers reached out to tell his story Official reports state that 63 grizzlies have been killed along that section of the BNSF line since 1980. Hmm. That's likely a a gross undercount, said Summers, who can recall being on at least one train that killed a grizzly. If I've hit one, I've been absolutely baffled if everyone who has run a train through there hasn't, he said. 63 since 1980, it's got to be, if I had a hazard a guess, it has to be at least double or triple that. Where does the grain come from? Grain spilled from rail cars and then exposed to the moisture of rain or snow ferments and becomes a de facto brewery, retired <laughs> federal ecologist Chuck Neal of Cody recently told Cowboy State Daily. And there's no shortage of the main ingredients for that brewery, Summer said. It's mostly a matter of gravity. Railroad grain cars are a simple utilitarian design, he said. Um, I want to play this. I, I jumped over on accident. Let's hear Eastman real quick. It's really short. And then we'll go. We did nothing
2: wrong. We were challenging the election for what even uh, Vice President Pence described as serious allegations of fraud and numerous instances of officials violating state law. And if we can't speak out about that, then our freedom of speech, our right to petition the government for redress of grievances are gone.
0: Yep. Yep. Yep.
1: Yep. Rights to regress are gone. That's the end game, folks. Uh, One more right legislated away with not law, but law fair, nasty business. The Bears Have It Right, Drink to Excess, Jump on the Tracks. Uh, No, just kidding. Don't do that, kids.
2: Hi, I'm JC Bowman. I'm the CEO of Professional Educators of Tennessee, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View Podcast. Glad to be with you.
1: Welcome, my coach for the day. I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View, and hit the subscribe button and follow us. I really hope you like it. Half of all kids in public education are below the poverty line. Two-thirds of the achievement gap comes from factors outside of school. Teachers influence about 7 to 10% of what happens in kids' lives. When you think about those statistics, you have to think about how to re-envision education so it's holistic. And so we all share responsibility. Randy Weingarten said that, like a true communist. All right, I have more, but I don't have time. So that's it for this episode. Thank you, Stephen Wallace, for reminding us fixing public schools isn't hard, just no political will to do so. And Randy Weingarten sucks. Until next time, this is your host, Stephen Bromowitz, editor-in-chief of McView.us. So one reason I love my move to Tennessee, especially near Nashville... It's just about anywhere you go, you bump into someone who makes amazing music. Here I was at breakfast on Friday. Check this out, Mr. Tucker, a spontaneous moment in Tennessee. Peace in our time and glory to God.
0: the God of the brave Jehovah John, God to my head, my the county fair they were looking for America behind a return flying the very colors that so